denial can be a very dangerous thing. Denial. Denial can be a very dangerous thing. Think in terms of dating. Those character flaws you see ought not to be ignored. Denial can be a dangerous thing. That rattle in your car, you might want to get that checked. Denial can be a dangerous thing. For the addict, friend, you do have a problem. Denial can be a very dangerous thing. It can happen with nations as well, whole peoples, uh, massive uh, events in, in the news, denial being a, a dangerous thing. A headline just from this past week, maybe some of you saw this, whistleblower dies from coronavirus. In early December, China reprimanded Li Wenlong and seven other doctors for warning friends on social media about the growing threat of the new coronavirus. On Friday, Li died of the virus at Wuhan Central Hospital where he worked as an ophthalmologist. He was 34. How are people responding? Li's death has fueled growing frustration over the Chinese government's initial attempt to hide the outbreak. Quote, there should be more openness and transparency, Lee had told the New York Times. Hundreds of thousands of users left messages under Lee's last post on the Chinese microblogging set Weibo, but government censors quickly deleted some of the more critical posts. Understandably, many are blaming the Chinese government's slow reaction and attempts to suppress initial information about the virus. If you know anything about the way the Chinese government works, none of this is surprising, but it doesn't change the facts that denial is dangerous. All the more so regarding the topic of our text this morning, the final judgment. Denial is dangerous. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew 25. We're pressing on in this series in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the fourth of the four, excuse me, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John's first book of the New Testament. This is the very end of uh, Matthew 25, the very end of what's referred to oftentimes as the, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Matthew 25, we're going to be reading verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25 verses 31 to 46. Hear now the word of God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, "'Come, you who are blessed by my Father,' Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Well, we certainly do need to pray, so let's do that now. Father, thank you. Thank you for not leaving us to wonder or to guess. Thank you for not leaving us without word of what is to come. And therein, of course, how we are to live now as we wait however long that waiting may be. We know what's something of what that is like, what it is to live in light of something that's coming tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. We ask that you'd help us to know and to live according to what you are saying is coming certainly, even if we are uncertain about the timing. And may our hope deeply, deeply find its roots in this very good news. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's be honest. News of Jesus' return and a final judgment is an obstacle of faith for many people. It is a barrier for many. It is a stumbling block for no few. It is what some would refer to as a defeater belief to the Christian faith. Yeah, the concept of a final judgment and, and that sort of, of thing. The questions, rage, surge, something like this. How in the world can you speak of a God who on the one hand is full of love and full of wrath at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. How in the world can you even begin to speak of a God, a God of love, sending good people to hell? That I don't understand. How in the world, in this day and age, can you be so primitive, so backwards as to speak of a final judgment? a heavenly, divine, eternal courtroom. How in the world can you speak in such ways? Such questions are so powerful and so relentless that many Christians have given way to an old heresy called universalism. It's been around a long time. It didn't just show up in the 20th century. And universalism goes something like this, that in the end, everyone will be saved including perhaps even, some go so far as to say, even Satan and the demons. Let's roll that out for a moment if we can. Let's think about this and the implications of where this takes you, if that's in fact where you want to put your feet. What kind of God are you left with who will never put an end to evil? who will never quarantine those who are committed to do evil? What kind of God are, you, are we left with who will never say to genocidal dictators, to school shooters, to racists, to gossips, who refuse his authority and shun his assistance? Enough! 
What kind of God are we left with who will never say such things, never put an end to evil, and never quarantine those who are committed to do evil? Think with what we're left with. What are we left with? There are no checks, no warnings. There's no comfort, no assurance to victims. There's no encouragement, no ability to any of us to not take vengeance into our own hands when we are done wrong and to leave justice, eternal, true, right justice in his hands. There's no ability, no encouragement to do that thing if that's the kind of God that we're left with. Which brings us to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 and what is referred to oftentimes as the, as the Olivet Discourse. Chapter 24, chapter 25, it's the whole of the teaching. Jesus is putting before his disciples in the last week before, well, it's during the week of Good Friday and Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then leading into Easter Sunday. He's putting before his disciples uh, teaching regarding the future, near and far, things that are certainly going to come to pass in one way or the other. And he tells, gives a ser- series of four parables to make clear the certainty of his return, yet so the uncertainty of the timing of all that, and there in this absolute necessity of our being prepared and what perhaps that might look like. Those four parables, sketch that out. We were looking at some of that just, just last week. Along the way, through the course of the Olivet Discord, chapter 24, 25, he's at least hinting, if not speaking quite powerfully, at the idea, the possibility, well, the, poss- the certainty of a final judgment, of his return. But here right at the end, whatever else he has hinted at, he is driving in hard, being very explicit and pointed with the reality of his return and a final judgment, which is exactly what we're seeing here in this text. In fact, Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning and will bring a final judgment. He is returning and will bring a final judgment. You can't get away from that if you're going to pay attention to this passage. We need to live in light of that, that he is returning, and with that there will be a final judgment, and we need to live in light of that, especially in these two ways. First, the reality of his judgment And secondly, the criterion of his judgment. The reality of his judgment and the criterion of his judgment. That's what you see in your outline. We're going to press in 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 those ways in the outline. So first, the reality of his judgment. Now, many have said through the years, and rightly so, that Jesus is, in fact, a great teacher. Well, that's right. He's a bit more, but he is a great teacher at the very least. Grant you that point. Why don't we listen to what he teaches? This teacher is serious. Let's pay heed to what it is that he is teaching. He's using some ancient images here that his, his hearers would have readily grasped what he was getting at and, and, and the, the idea of a mixed flock of sheep and goats and understanding the, the way things worked and still work in the, in the, uh, the Far East still today is that during the course of the day, out there in the pastures, the sheep and the goats are mixed together, um, grazing out there together uh, as, as one mixed flock. But when night comes, there's a division 
of the flock, of the sheep going on, uh, staying outside because that's what sheep like to do. They prefer the open air, but the goats tend to get cold and they need to be brought inside. So every evening, shepherds, this is what they will do out in that part of the world still today, the sheep stay outside, the goats are brought in, there is a, a separating, if you will. Well, all of that is meant to point towards these ancient images are meant to point towards these etern this eternal reality of something that's coming, a final judgment. And that's exactly what Jesus is speaking of here, an ultimate, not just an one at the end of the day, but an ultimate division is going to take place, a separating of those who up to that point have been blended together, a final determination and division of one to the right and one to the left, and there being no middle ground whatsoever, no third place, one to the right and one to the left. That's exactly what he says there in verses 31 through 33, lest we miss the point. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Again, all those who have been up to that point mixed together will be separated. One to the right and one to the left. We need to be very careful about where we get our ideas about the end of things. It's not going to work to get your ideas, to get your understanding on such things from, I would say, about 99% of talk radio or the hosts or the guests of The View or The Good Life or Lucifer or The Good Omen. We can debate about whether or not any of that stuff is really good entertainment, but that's not my point. The point is... Dare not get your ideas about these things from sources such as that. The reality is we are not all going, all destined for the same place by different paths. The reality is we're all heading to different places by different paths, and there's only one that ends well. There's only one that ends well. Now, that is not a popular message. That is not a, a, a reality, a truth claim that goes down very well in our day. You say what I just said in some semblance of those words in Walmart or the mall or Starbucks or your workplace or your backyard fence, and you're going to hear something along the lines of this and a pushback. You need to be more tolerant. Oftentimes, and I don't mean to be unkind, and maybe I'm stepping on some toes, and that's not my intent, but just to speak clearly, oftentimes that push for tolerance made by those who are intolerant in their call for tolerance. Is that even possible? Let's just think about this for a moment. The insistence that we would just all get along and let all truth claims just lie and not examine anything, but just let's just live and let live. Is that, is that possible? Is it desirable? Granted, we all have our own perspective on the truth. Absolutely. 
But that does not necessarily mean that all perspectives are equally valuable and valid. Let's roll this out. A neurosurgeon has one perspective on that gray matter in your skull. I have another. Now, who do you want doing brain surgery on you this afternoon? Him, her, or me? Oh, but you see what we're doing with this. I'm playing. No, I'm not playing. Is there truth or isn't there? Is there? Are there some perspectives that are more valid and valuable than others or not? Is there a place for specialists in this world? Of course there is. Of course there is. What Jesus is reminding us here, among many other things here in Matthew 25, is that there is such a thing as objective truth. There is such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil, heaven and hell. He is returning. He is bringing with him a final judgment. We need to live in light of that. We need to live in light of that. Now, that takes us to the second point, not just the reality of judgment that we need to live in light of, but the criterion of the judgment. The criterion. Put it this way. It's a question really well worth asking. What's the standard? What's the standard of the judgment that's, that's coming? What is it that sends some to the right and others to the left? That question, I don't know, might be worth asking and worth considering. What does Jesus have in mind? But you go back and you read through the text and you see it's very clear. He has at the very least, the very least, the meeting of basic human needs of food and clothing and companionship. You think about it, in the ancient world and sadly in far too many places still today, hunger is rampant, water is scarce, food is expensive, medical care is spotty at, at best, travel can be really dangerous, and prisons can be dark and dismal. That's what he's speaking to here. And, and, and in terms of repetition, I don't know if you noticed, but I mean, he's certainly Jesus is not shying away from repeating himself four times. He lists those six things that are called for here. Why? Four times he lists those six. Repetition is for emphasis. Repetition is for emphasis to draw our attention to something, to heighten our awareness of the importance of, and significance of something. And here Jesus is pointing out the distinction between those who are blessed and following him and those who are cursed and have turned away from him. And those two different paths, those two different ways that could not be more stark in their distinction and differences. He's drawing our attention to that. That's what Jesus has in mind, at the very least, that, those, these acts of mercy and compassion and the meeting of these physical needs and, and, and caring for others. That's what he has in mind. Who does he have in mind? And what I mean by that is, who does Jesus mean to be the recipients of such mercy and such care? Who does he have in mind here? Now, there are some mistaken views on this point. Some go too far, and some don't go far enough. 
Some go too far and say, this, is, this text is actually calling for every human need to be met in every way possible. That's what they're saying this particular text means. That's actually going too far. It's not what the text is saying. I'll come back to that in a minute. Some don't go far enough and say this is only applying to the apostles at the time or missionaries still today. Both of these are mistaken views, one not going far enough and one going far too far. What Jesus is saying here is the criterion for judgment, who he has in mind, who needs to be the recipients of this care and mercy are his own. His followers, his disciples. Now, quick, I said I was going to come back to something. Here's, I'm coming back to it. Here's my qualifier. Don't for a minute think I'm saying that the Bible doesn't call for us to be merciful and to try and come alongside to meet the needs of the poor and the needy. That is not what I'm saying, that the Bible doesn't say that. But I'm ta we're talking about what this text is saying. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It makes it very clear. Who is your neighbor? Everyone. The person in need is your neighbor. And you're to lay yourself out to meet that person's need. So it's very clear what the Bible says as a whole on this topic. We're talking about what does this text say? What does Matthew 25 say? The criterion for judgment, what Jesus is saying here is that his own, his disciples, his followers whether we have or have not met their needs in their time of need, that's the criterion of judgment. How do we know that? How do we say that? How can we say that? Well, for instance, Galatians 6, if you're going to keep your thumb there in Matthew 25, Paul says this very clearly in Galatians 6. So this is after Romans and after the Corinthian letters, and you hit Galatians. Galatians 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So you get that sense of, on the one hand, it's broad, but most especially narrow and specific. Now, in the text, Matthew 25, it comes out quite clearly as well. For instance, you have the, the question that the king is asked, first of the people on the right and then the people on the left, the, the, the question that he is asked and then his answer. So in verse 40, the first answer is, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then verse 45, he says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. When Jesus in this text is making a reference to his brothers, that is not a reference to the brotherhood of man. It is a reference to siblings who share a significant spiritual bond. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's who he is referring to here in this text. When he makes mention, and this is really important to note, in every instance in Matthew's gospel, when he uses the language of the least of these, that is always a reference to his followers. That is always a reference exclusively to his disciples. So see, again, the, the criterion here, what he has in mind here, what is it that drives, that determines who is going to the right and who is going to the left is determined by how are his own cared for? How are their needs provided for? That's, so that's what he has in mind. That's who he has in mind. But that takes us to the next thing, and that's why. Why does Jesus have this in mind? Why is it that he has such a, an intense concern 
for his own because of his identification with his own. His identification with his own. His love of his own. You want to go back and, again, keep your thumb in Matthew 25. Let's go back to Matthew 10. This is hinted at, well, maybe more than hinted, in verses 40 through 42, Matthew chapter 10. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What Jesus is saying here is to welcome the messenger is to welcome the message and the one who sent the messenger with the message. Those two things cannot be disentangled. They're one whole. Or put it another, put it another way, our response to his own is tied to our response to him. The one is the expression of the other, ultimately, in Jesus' eyes. So where does this leave us? These acts of kindness, these acts of compassion, these acts of mercy reveal something as to our relation with the king and the kingdom. They don't determine it. Don't Don't misunderstand. They don't determine it. They reveal and demonstrate it. By your fruits, you will know them. By your fruits, you will know them. By these acts, you will know something of the heart. By these things, it is revealed therein our relation to the king and the kingdom and therein the criterion that Jesus will use on the day of judgment as to who goes to the right And who goes to the left? This is hardly the only place we see this kind of thing. Acts chapter 9, it's worth noting before we press on, Acts chapter 9, this is uh, Paul's account of his own conversion. And it's really rather striking what Paul says here, what Jesus emphasizes so strongly to Paul in that encounter on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, this is the man who later became Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Do you hear the echoes of Matthew 25? It's very clear. To oppose his own is to oppose him. To persecute his own, Jesus says, is to persecute him. 
such as the level, such as the intensity of his identifying with his own. Now, that is tremendously comforting. It is also tremendously convicting. At least it should be. Let me take this in terms of application at two levels. One at 10,000 feet, and then the other right on the ground, okay? So here's the 10,000 foot. Here's, here's way up high. Here's, let's think about the global church for a moment, okay? And our union with our brothers and sisters around this globe. So we hear news. We hear news of those who are suffer, Christians who are suffering, who are persecuted for their faith. We were praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters just a few minutes ago. We hear news of those who are persecuted and suffering for their faith in places like China and North Korea and regions of the Middle East and Africa. And how, how, how do we respond to that? Do we just, I don't know, turn to cat videos on Facebook? How do we respond to that? We hear not just news like in big, but, but reports actual reports of ancient Christian communities in Iraq and Syria who have been there centuries before there was a United States of America that are nearly crushed into the ground, displaced and dispersed, and holding on now by a thread. We hear stories even this week, if you'll just look at the news, of pastors and seminarians in Nigeria kidnapped and executed, beheaded, in fact. Now, how do we respond to that? What does Jesus say about these people? They are the least of these. They are his brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus says. What do we say? What do we say? All right, that's the 10,000 foot level. Now let's bring it down to the earth, right here. What are the implications of this for our relationships with one with another? Jesus says the criterion of judgment on his return will be how his own were treated. So here's the question. That's the criterion. Here's the question. How are his own treating his own? You see? He says the, the, the level of his identification with his own is so intense and so personal that the criterion of judgment on his return is going to be how his own were treated. So the, that's the criterion. Here's the question. How are his own treating his own? Here we're not thinking in terms of expressions of, of mercy as far as coming alongside others in, in their physical need, here we're speaking more of expressions of mercy, mercy in coming alongside one another in confessing our sin to one another, repentance and forgiveness.
So with that, is there a rift between you and anyone in this room right now? Or at home? You and a sibling. You and a child. You and a spouse. What is Jesus' criterion for judgment when he returns? The intensity of his identification with his people is so personal that he is in, he really, he's going to be looking at how his own are treated. That's their criterion. The question is, for us, how are his own treating his own? When he returns, he will bring judgment day. Again, we need to live in light of this. We need to live in light of this. How seriously are we taking his words? We need to live in light of this. Now, this is not hard to envision, really, this idea of such intense love manifests itself so powerfully, so dramatically. This is not that hard for us to envision. Love and wrath, think with me, love and wrath are not two incompatible categories. Not at all. Not necessarily. Not at all. Sometimes, in fact, there can be not, not a division between the two, but actually a tie, the one leading to the other, a correlation directly between the intensity of our love and the extent of our wrath, right? Sometimes in love, we may get angry for someone we love, right? A mother and her child, okay? Will she stand for spotty treatment and attention by the pediatrician towards her child? Will she stand for that? No, she won't. Why? Because sometimes we may, for the sake of the one we love, we may get angry for the one we love. But that's not the only way love and wrath can express themselves together. Sometimes with someone we love, we may get angry with them because of our love. And here I'm not thinking of a mother and a child. Here I'm thinking more of a, say, a, you have a sibling or a friend who is enmeshed in some kind of an addiction or a destructive pattern of behavior that is tearing their lives apart. So how do you respond to that? Indifference? You love them. We, that's, we put that on the table. You love them. Is it indifference? Is that your response? I don't care. No. If you love this person and you're concerned for them, you can, yes, you can absolutely get mad with them. Not just for them, but with them. And you don't really care if you offend them. You don't really care if they say, you're judging me. Because you're going to confront them in love. Because of love. Wrath and love 
are not necessarily two different things. Sometimes there could be a direct correlation between the two. Sometimes anger can be born of love. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here in the reality of his return, which will bring a day of judgment. Anger born of love. He is returning, and with his return will come a day of judgment. We need to live with that in mind. Let's pray. Lord, we know that denial of many things, all kinds of things, can be a dangerous thing. You are the alpha and the omega. You are the beginning and the end. You are the author and the finisher in you. All things hold together. You are both the good shepherd and the righteous judge. And you have made it clear what is coming and who is coming on that day. And on that day, you will make it abundantly clear, lest we miss the point, as to how you feel about your own and how you feel about those who mistreat your own. And for those of us here this morning who are, by your grace, numbered among your own, we are your followers, your disciples. We have bent the knee to you and said you are all we have and all we need. And living by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is tremendous comfort. But a challenge too. And we ask that you'd help us to hear both sides, the challenge and the comfort. We pray in your name. Amen. We are continuing in our worship now. Here